myself out. I am afraid of I'm terrified and paralyzed by I am deathly afraid of Welcome to the Sum of All Fears podcast with your host, me, Ryan Perio. Hello and welcome to the Sum of All Fears podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Perio. This week, my guest is comedian and speaker Jonathan Jones, a.k.a. J.J. Jones. Jonathan Jones is kind of a renaissance man by his own accounts. He does speaking, uh, commercial real estate investment, comedy, and in the past he was a professional wrestler. In this episode, we talk about his life as far as wrestling, fatherhood, comedy, speaking, and then we get into his fear of making a bad impression. So let's get into that interview right now with Jonathan Jones. All right, my guest is commercial real estate agent, as well as speaker on the multi-generational workplace and comedian, Jonathan J.J. Jones is here with me today. Howdy. Also probably the biggest fan of my podcast. He may be <laughs> he may be the only person that listens. I am not sure, but he is he's a comedian here in the Dallas Fort Worth area and he also he's probably one of the best dressed comedians in the Dallas Fort Worth area. He will he will come at rock the bow tie and the suit occasionally when he is in between between doing his his day job or speaking or doing comedy. He was Mr. Thickness, I think, two years in a row in the Dallas comedy scene. JJ, how you doing? uh, I'm great. I'm great. I'm glad you remembered Mr. Thickness. I I use that as my only credit. (laughs) There hasn't been another competition, so I technically am undefeated. If they have another one, if you get it again, do you get to be Dr. Thickness? At some point, does it it graduate into a PhD in thickness? Oh, yeah. I definitely have increased my thickness since then. So I I think that that's that's fair fair for me to lobby for. (laughs) To just work up the titles to to Dean Thickness. Yeah. Master of Thickness, Emperor of Thickness, you know, one of those things. So what got you into stand-up? We'll start with with where I know you best, stand-up. Well, um, man, I, <laughs> like most uh, love stories, I, uh, I got divorced. And uh, I was looking for something to fill my void. And I'd always wanted to do stand-up, always been interested in it. But I had no idea that Dallas had a scene. Like my, my assumption was you got to go to LA, you got to go to New York, you got to, you know, to go find comedy. And I didn't know it was here. Well, when I was looking for something to do, a buddy of mine, who's a promoter, uh, was putting on a one man show for, um, uh, what's the name? Uh, the honky tonk man, um, Wayne Ferris, the honky tonk man, former WWE, yeah, F WWE uh, superstar and Hall of Famer, and he was doing a one man show. And this guy had done the one man show in other regions, but wanted to do one down here in the area, and found that a comedian was a better opener for his show than a band. 
And so the promoter called me and he was like, Hey, uh, he asked about you because you used to make everybody laugh in the locker room when you were wrestling, when I back when I was a pro wrestler. Would you be interested in opening for him on this thing? And I thought to myself, Sure. And he was like, Good, you know, maybe like 20 minutes or so. You do talk and do your skit because everybody calls it a skit, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then do it. And I was like, Great. And then me being the nerd that I am started looking into it and I go, Oh man, 20 minutes is a lot. <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to do this. I probably should go get some practice. And fortunately for me, it was about eight to 10 months out before uh, I was actually going to do this little five day tour. But uh, that's, that's what kicked me in the butt and made me start hitting mics and writing and taking classes and everything I could to, to build some material. So, I want to back up for just a second. Did you sure. say pro wrestler that you were a pro- yeah? I, yes, I am. I'm a Renaissance man. I I was a pro wrestler. I uh I got into you know I was like most of the kids uh, that were teenagers in the '90s. You know, I was mm-hmm. a huge fan of D- Generation X and Stone Cold and all that stuff. But even growing up, I was a huge wrestling fan and. Uh, I was a father young. I was a father right out of high school and uh, I got into a little trouble and lost half of my scholarship, which was athletic. I was going to go to SMU and I lost half my scholarship because of uh, disciplinary issues and uh, needed an outlet for my, my athleticism and, and, and energy. And I just so happened to be watching Monday Night Raw one night and a on cable and a public access commercial came on and it was Skandar Akbar wanting me to, or not wanting me, but had a wrestling school. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let me sign up. And so I did it. And that was the next five years of my life. So um, you said athletic scholarship. What sport were you a scholarship athlete in? Uh, football. I had offers in track for USC and, um, Football also for a smaller college, but because I was going to be a dad, I thought I needed to stay local. In retrospect, I probably would have taken a different one. I had a theater scholarship to go to Northwestern, but at the time, I knew so little about education, and I'm the first person to graduate college in my family, mm-hmm. and I, I I knew so little about education that I thought if I went to college on a theater scholarship, I had to be in theater. Like I didn't realize I was just paying for school and it didn't matter what I majored in, uh, but I had no one to show me the way. So I passed that up. And in retrospect, that probably would have been the best fit for me. But uh, yeah, it was football, man. I was a, believe it or not, I was a quarterback. I was pretty fast back then. Okay. I, I, I'm trying to picture it, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't even like Dante Culpepper big. I was, you know, I was just felt like 228, you know, I ran a 4440. Yeah. Well, you know, I, was, I didn't have, my arm was okay. Mm-hmm. If I ever was good enough to make the league, I would have been a backup at best. I just, I was a good leader of men, not necessarily Drew Brees' arm. Yeah. What would your 40 be now? Forever. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if we, I don't could, know we could challenge Tyson. Tyson's always wanted to challenge people to a foot race. You know, if I stretched out, I'd be willing to do it. I'd, I'd probably surprise some people. I mean, I, I got a lot of momentum, so I used to. 
I'm not as fast as I used to, but I'm racing. You got, you've got a good fit. If you got a good long finish line that you can, you can, you can ease up. <laughs> yeah. My, my, uh, my big racing track was the the quarter mile. I ran a 400. I, my best split was a uh, 46 seconds. I used to be pretty quick, man, but you know, I hated track. So there's that. And that's kind of, I think a lot of sometimes student athletes is sometimes you realize that it's not really you that's behind that. It's uh, it's people that that see your talent and pushing you, and sometimes that push can can just be aware because it's not something you're inspired to do. It's something that you feel you have to do. Yeah. So you so so let's count down the things that we've just learned about JJ Jones in the last <laughs> ten minutes. That he was a he was a recruit a college recruit for football and track at many i guess major universities and had a child really when i knew you were a dad so that's step separate is she is she an athlete athlete in any way uh she was she was my my oldest is 23 now she's uh wrapping up college and uh she was an athlete in, in high school my youngest should be an athlete she's like 511 and 13 years old, but she has dedicated her life to music and theater, but she's exceptional at, I, you know, my, my athlete dad heart breaks. Cause I'm like, you can get a scholarship by standing there, but, but, but my, my, my proud dad heart is exploding because she, you know, she really is a talented actress. Yeah. It's, it's also, it's also neat to, to see them find something that they're willing to just, you know, consume, for hours on end probably just to find because that's what i tell any young person is like find your passion early because that way you can spend more time on it rather than trying to find ways to do it when you're older yeah i mean i think that you know we're around the same age and i think the generation that we grew up in that wasn't there there was every once in a while there was someone like hey find something you love to do and you never work a day in your life but that really wasn't how we were pushed. Like we were pushed to like fit inside of a box, not necessarily do what you love. Yeah. Which is, you know, unfortunate, but eh, it is what it is. But it's also leading into the other achievement that you've done. You're a, you're a keynote speaker and you've won awards for your articles in the multi-generational workplace, which I'm curious to see how, how you, you were inspired to write that piece. Um, well, I was, uh, I was at a point in my career where, well, let me back up a little bit. I was trying to finish up school Mm -hmm. I have two master's degrees and I was finishing up my second one, my MBA. And I took a class and it was online and I failed it. It's the only time I've ever failed a class at school. The teacher hated me. Everything that I did, she thought I was just trying to like get by, you know, not do the book work. I was, I was just creative in the way I was thinking about things and she didn't like that. I wasn't following the book to a T. And so she failed me, which was upsetting because one college was expensive. Um, and two, like it was the last thing I had to do. I was done with school forever. Right. Um, so the next semester I was like, maybe if I was, in person, I could have a better rapport with the teacher and they wouldn't think I was just some jack wagon 
they could understand where I was coming from because, you know, we were face to face and they got a feeling for me and all that kind of stuff. Well, the next professor was much different. He was uh, willing to teach other book, but his thing was like, look, the only thing I want you to do in this class is write a peer reviewed paper. It's your only grade. I want it to be about something that matters to you in business. Um, and it's a pass fail. Like that's it. And there's other work and stuff, but he's like, that was it. So at the time I was working and I was getting frustrated in my career because I wasn't moving up and it wasn't because I wasn't skilled enough or as good as people that were at my level or better. It, it really felt like there was nowhere to go. Like the walls were kind of closing in. So I, I started looking at generational diversity at the time, it was just people not retiring, right. As being a business problem. And I, that's, that's what inspired the paper is I was like, my life sucks because modern medicine's making people live longer and no one's retiring. So I can't move up. And it, it boiled down to, I mean, when I was a kid, life expectancy was 72. Well, shit, it's, you know, about 82 now. So saving for the last seven years of your life and retiring at 65 is a lot easier than saving for the last 17 years of your life yeah. and retiring at 65. So people are staying in the workforce longer. And, and so I, I started doing research on the different generations and the impact on the workforce and how that, how that goes. And I, and I wrote this paper about it. Um, some of the research was done by me. Some of it was done by other people. And I, I put this together and it was a time where not a lot of people, people were talking about it. It was still kind of taboo to discuss mm -hmm. age. And um, my professor sent it off to some of his colleagues. And they were just like, hey, look what my grad students are doing. And one of them, she was at Cambridge in the UK. She was like, are you sure this is a doctoral student? And he was like, no, I'm positive it's not a doctoral student. I'm like, We wanted to come speak at the Cambridge Business Economics Conference. And so they told me about it and I was like, okay, great. I, I'll go do it. And while I was, you know, fundraising to go do that, I got contacted by uh, the journal, um, international journal of arts and sciences. And they wanted me to be a keynote at Harvard for the same deal. And my approach and thought about uh, generational diversity in the workplace was really to break apart the generations and, and view them more in uh, the perspective of the culture than like an age bracket. Right. Because people are more accepting when they're like, oh, that's something they do culturally. Or like he, you know, does that because of his culture. She acts that way because of the culture. Then all of a sudden people are more accepting or at least more willing to listen to why things might be different. Um, and there are some good solutions in solving some of the, you know, some of the problems. And, and that's where it came from, man. It was it was me being like, this sucks. Why does it suck? So kind of like coming up with a joke, like, <laughs> right? Like, but it's a, but that's how, yeah, it's like writing. It's basically you're, you were able to get to the emotional, I guess you were tapping into an emotion that I would say a lot of people were probably feeling, you know, because they're seeing not as many opportunities open up because people in those positions weren't retiring. And so you were, you were kind of in the dead end job and it's weird to be working for a company now because it feels like, they're doing everything and their possibility to keep you moving through the company. Like I've, I'm, I struggle with it. Cause I was just like, 
when I started, it was like, just put your head down, do your work and don't get noticed. Now it's how can, how can you get noticed? Like it's, everything is about getting recognized and noticed and prestige and moving into new positions and other places. It was, you know, if you do your job, you, you keep it. And that was, that was the whole long and short of it. And it's, it's such a weird thing to try to change to from being just straight production to be somebody that, that I will outwork you and to have to sit here and to volunteer for things and to, to be a, be a chair on this or be a, you know, point of contact for that is such a, such a different swing for me as a corporate person. Yeah. It's a lot different environment than it was. And it's weird because I I feel like the rules have changed mid game for me. And I I don't mean, I'm not upset about it. It's just, it feels it's very different than what I grew up accustomed to, or that, you know, that I've, been accustomed to in my 20 year career. It's the longest I've ever spent at a career. Like I've been with this company now as a contractor and an employee for 13, 13 years. And I've been almost an employee, almost 10, like it'll be 10 next August. Shit, man. And so it's one of those things where I enjoy what I do. I'm good at it, but it's also like, now they're pushing me, like, say, what else can you, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, you know, I've never really, I've never put that, you, you just never put that thought into it because it's never been, you know, it's just, it's, it's been a, it's never been such a wide open, I would say, advancement. Like your advancement mm-hmm. was, was a straight line. You do this job, you're the, the lead of this job, you're the manager of this job, you're the director of this job. Now it's, you can do this job. Now you can cut over here to this department and be a team lead on this job. And it's, it's just so, yeah. it, I would say it's so much more wild, wild west. Like it's just, you know, you can, you know, just retain, they to retain your services and talent, you know, as a younger person, it's what carrot can we offer you to stay here? And as a person yeah. like me, I'm like, well, your steady paycheck is carried enough for me. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just definitely messing with my, I guess, ability to just be content and i was because i i'm content in doing what i do and getting a you know nice little raise every year and then doing comedy on the side but it's like now they're like well what what other positions do you want you know let's let's try to get you moved up in the company and like i don't know you know it just it just is confusing to me it just like it's over it's overwhelming to think that you know that you know what i what used to considered you know a you know, a lifer or a, uh, you know, dedicated employee is now a red flag. Yeah. Why, why do you want to just come in, clock in, clock out and do your job every day? Yeah. Like, why don't, why don't you want more than that? (laughs) And it's like, I I don't know what more there is because it's, it's just one of those things where I've never, I've always been, I'm not a college graduate. I don't have any kind of degrees of any kind. I'm just one of these people that put their head down. I put, in school, I put my head down so much, I didn't know about SATs. I never took my SATs or anything because I didn't, I just did the day-to-day work and didn't want to be there the rest. And so I was like, I would come in for school because I was supposed to be at school and then I would go home. I was very routine-based and any kind of deviation just throws me for a loop. But that's just me. Yeah. So. Yeah, dude, that's, that's, Yeah. 
I'm not a creature of change either. Like I love, <laughs> I like things to say the same. And since you're a creature of change, like you said, it's interesting your fear, which is go ahead and tell people what you're afraid of. So I have a, a, a fear of giving people the wrong impression. Like I, I don't like when, whether it's the way I articulate things or facial expressions or my reaction to things, um, give people the wrong impression of how I truly feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's been that way for a very long time. And I've, I've thought about where it came from. And the only thing I can think of is that um, when I was young, uh, a lot of people really didn't know what to make of me, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not they knew how to articulate that to me properly or not. You know, I'm, I'm biracial. I'm, you know, um, and I grew up, I was born in 1980. I'm 41 years old. And I was born only 13 years after the Loving Act. And a lot of people don't know what that is, but the Loving Act was in 1967. And there was, you know, it was finally legal in this country for uh, a person of color and a white person to be married and, and have kids. Now, so there were, there were mulattoes, biracial, whatever you want to call them before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was taboo and technically legal. Um, but I was, you know, my brother was born in 1970. So it was three years after it was legal. And then I was just 13 years after. So when I grew up, it was very uncommon for mixed race people to be around mm-hmm. and people didn't know what to think of me or take of me, you know, um, which, which is the era that I grew up in. And now it's very commonplace and I'm happy for that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's kind of left me in a place where I think that sometimes uh, in an effort to be non-offensive or non-descript non, uh, to individuals, it, it's, it ends up being worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, I'm scared of that. I'm scared of portraying that in interpersonal communication. I'm bad at that in relationships, at work, and every, everywhere you can imagine. I got an example of, of how my, I give people the wrong impression. So you're constantly walking on eggshells just because you you feel that your your life is is something is something you have to explain and you have to do it in a I guess very I guess descriptive and eloquent I guess wording like you want to make sure that everything like you don't want to give them the impression that and it's got to be hard because it's there's heritages on both sides there and you kind of potentially deny one to try to make a good impression to the one that's more predominant. So like if you're in a, in a room more of African-American people, you may accentuate the black half of your, of your. Oh yeah. Whereas when you're in a room full with full of white people, you may point to try to be more Caucasian and white do behaviors and things like that. And, well, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I learned at a very early age to code switch. So, and, and basically code switching is, you know, kind of mirroring the speech patterns and, and mannerisms of the people you're around. It makes them more comfortable with you. And it's just something I did naturally, I guess, you know, um, survival technique more than like manipulation. And now it's funny because I'll catch myself doing it or someone who's known me for a very long time 
will see me doing it and it's foreign to them. They're like, holy shit, you talk with a country twang? And I was like, oh, I'm around country people. I do, I guess, you know, or, and also with social media and, and how visible everything is to your point, you know, fitting in or accentuating or denying, like it's all backwards and flipped around. Like it's, yeah. I, I get often, people often think that I'm just, you know, an awful person because I, you know, of my value set, but they don't really know who I am. Like I love everybody. Mm-hmm. I just have like some values that I, I hold pretty near and dear. And, you know, because I don't subscribe to, you know, whatever the majority subscribes to a lot of times I get, I give people the wrong impression, mm-hmm. um, which isn't what I'm trying to do at all. And like I said, I, I hate it. It's the, it's the fear that I have most is, <laughs> is, is, is talking to people, people seeing me, observing me and getting the wrong impression because I'm not, I'm not a bad dude, I'm not a hateful person, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not so, trying to be someone I'm not. So do you have an example of giving somebody the wrong impression? Like what, a, what would be a situation where you've kind of walked away, I guess, shaking your head that that happened? Well, I mean, I've been, um, I've been recently, recently been told, uh, that I wasn't black. Okay. And that was because I wanted to understand everything surrounding the horrifying murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. So my initial reaction was like everyone's, that was awful. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, what happened? But also the way my mind works, not to defend the officer, but like, let me see the whole picture. What else was going on? And while those things were happening, we had, I mean, the world was in turmoil. We were all locked in. This is where, this is where, you know, the fears kind of reemerged is the world was in turmoil. We're all locked down. Everybody's terrified of the virus. You know, the the country's on fire. We have a president who's a jack wagon. Like, all this shit's going on. It's terrible. And then, like, one after another, the next thing you know, I'm 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 being told that I'm not black because I my assumption is that police kill every, every black person. Well, I've been around it for a very long time. Yeah. And I've never been – I've always obeyed the rules. And, you know, I've been pulled over. I've gone to jail. Like, I've mm-hmm. – but I've never felt like my life is threatened because of police officer. So that's one thing, you know, another thing, like with, when it comes to like women, for example, like I'm, I'm a traditionalist in a lot of ways, but I'm also very much a feminist. Like I have daughters. I want women to be able to do everything and make decisions and like mm-hmm. be amazing in, in every right. But because I, like I have some traditional values, like I can be perceived as a bigot or a misogynist or these kind of things. And it's not me at all. And those are the types of things that I'm talking about is it's, it's very easy because I don't get incredibly emotional in situations. It seems like I don't care. Yeah. You could probably relate to that. Yeah. I, I definitely get that a lot. Like that was, that was something my mom would say to me whenever I made bad grades. And that, that kind of stuck with me because it wasn't that, but I just couldn't put a pin feather or anything on what was happening and you know medicine has 
gotten to the point where now I would have known where I'm at and it would have, you know, there could have been things that have, you know, made it easier. But there were just things that parent in the 80s, your parents just wouldn't do. And that put your kid on meds was not feasible. And Oh, yeah. It was just. Same here, man. Now it's, you know, commonplace. It seems that there are things, everybody's got, there's not everybody that's a perfect child. And, you know, just because they may not have a abnormality physically doesn't mean they don't emotionally, mentally aren't there's some things that just don't uh, not all things develop and so you will get people that maybe you know are on the spectrum somewhere or emo- emotionally just irrational or just people that are st- like statues basically that some people they're yeah you're fight there's there's fight or flight but there's also freeze and a lot of people in a in a stress situation will just freeze and shut down yep and so it's it's something I, I struggle with and I totally, you know, get where you're coming from as far as you there is outrage in some of these things, like with the George Floyd and everything else. There is outrage. As somebody that's been bullied their whole life, I have an intimate knowledge of fear. And so I can I can say in that in those situations when you get pulled over, there is a lot of fear and you're radiating fear to the police officer then now he is now on guard and it's just unfortunately it is a it's a human nature thing that i you know wish there was more oversight in that because there are just reactions to to everything and unfortunately some people are more victims of that than others and it seems like Yep. Some people's fear is okay, and they try to instead they try. Oh, well, he's obviously he's because he's Caucasian. He's afraid. He's just nervous of me. Let me just put his mind to these. When it's a person of color or minority that's nervous, oh, there's probably drugs in the car. You know, that's I just feel yeah. that there are different. I would say different. I guess answers to the same question based on what the officer sees, and that and that just bugs me because I think as we get more and more to what you you know like mixed race and you know it's okay to that it's not such a socially taboo thing to love somebody of a different gender race or color or ethnicity or religion anything you're going to get more of these mixed potential you know potential issues and i think hopefully as we become more integrated a lot of this goes away because it's not such a there's not such a stark contrast and there's not all this sub pre um generational the older generations influencing by by having their own stereotypes correct there's a I've taken a lot of diversity classes and it's just it's really fascinating <laughs> to find which well, just it's just all these preconceived by this bias that people have always had and you don't realize anything you have. It could be as innocent as someone from of a Latino background at your office saying, oh, I'm guessing you'll bring tacos or some, you know, and it's not something super, you know, offensive. But at the same time, you're putting tacos on somebody that maybe <laughs> it doesn't have to be, you know, you just bring a dish, you know, don't don't assume yeah. don't. Don't assume. Don't make an assumption on what dish they should, they could, or should bring, based on their ethnicity, you know, or culture. Yeah, I, I think I think the where we're at 
with all the instinctive biases, I think that plays right into my fear, right? Like, cause, because when, when I'm incongruent with what people's assumptions should be or think they should be, or where like, that's where, that's where a lot of problems come. And, and to your point, you know, asking a Hispanic person, you know, about bringing tacos, well, they're not a monolith. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Latin American, you know, branches that, that tacos aren't even customary in their, in their food. Right. Like yeah. that's not why I'm Chilean, dude. I, I bring ceviche, you know, or whatever, you yeah. know, like I, and, and uh, you know, I, it's a double-edged sword on the one hand, like, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to make assumptions that are unfair to people mm-hmm. or, or bring those, those, those biases, even from an innocent place. And on the other hand, like, you don't want to paint everybody as a monolith and have no flavor in life yep. in the world. But it's, it's just, I think it's just getting past those, I guess, and just actually getting to know the person and actually opening yourself up to, to a conversation with that person while at the same time, you know, not opening to the point where you can be taken advantage of. Yeah. That's a scary thing too. Right? Because, because kindness can be taken advantage of at some point. And so you have to try, you know, to to mask that or work with that to not get be taken advantage of. Yeah, people take kindness for weakness a lot, and it and it'll oftentimes get taken advantage of because a lot of times kind people are patient people as well. Yeah, and that's something you know in comedy that you'll realize is that being a lenient person that sometimes people will will take advantage of that. And so you have to, you just have to, you just have, it's, it's just basically a constant work in progress. And, but I mean, we are progressing. I think, I think society is a ways better than when I was a kid. And, you know, some of the things that, that were socially taboo aren't as it's sad that still some of the thing the, some of the things still exist. Like, you know, I just, to the George Floyd point, you know, that was, you know, that was still a problem yeah. in, in Spike Lee movies in early nineties, like do the right thing. You know, that was, that yeah. was, that was still happening. And it's, it's sad that that's still, because that, that really kind of changed my life as a kid because, you know, I never, I grew up in Houston and the suburbs and stuff. And I don't, I didn't understand, you know, that there are dangers out there for, for non, you know, white people that there's, there are these struggles and it's easy to be perceived as a threat and that your, your life could be on the line with every police stop. And but just, ne- I just never, it was such a, you know, far, I guess, outside of my scope of what I thought society was like, like, Oh, it's like, Oh yeah, it's going to be great. And I'm like, Whoa. So you're saying that my friends of color could be inadvertently m- shot or something just because they made a an action in a car that that was perceived as a threat. Yeah, and I, it, it's a terrifying thing. I think you know, like i I hate to, I hate, I hate the attitude of everybody be on guard and mad about it. At the same time, I hate the attitude of let's sweep it on the rug and ignore it. Yeah, I mean, my 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 father had a had a great talk with me. And I, I still to this day say my privilege in life is that my dad was around. Um, and, you know, thank God he still is. But he, 
he was like, look, son, you're 12 and six feet tall. You look like a grown man. You can't, <laughs> you can't be, you can't present yourself as aggressive and terrifying and angry because someone who doesn't know you that's looking at you from 50 feet away is going to be like, oh, there's a grown man over there, not a kid. Yeah. Now that I'm older, I look around and, you know, I take my kid to school and I see these boys that are giant humans and I'm like, oh, I get exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. Because if I saw this person 50 feet away, I'd be like, who is that man walking up to the school? <laughs> It's just, and it's just little things. I mean, it's, it's, and it's just, hopefully, like I said, things are getting better. It's just, unfortunately, it takes time to kind of, to, to move to that new norm because so many people will drag their feet on the old way and how, how it used to be. And it just, it's only, they only do that because it benefited them. They, it was their time to shine and um, my life when people were saying, you know, like, like with the old, I guess, president make things great again. I was like, well, when you say that, you know, there were generations that, you know, weren't, didn't think that that was so great, you know, like there yeah. as a Caucasian male. Oh yeah. I'm sure it was a, it was a great to have every opportunity, every, you know, advancement opportunity, despite your educational background. But there are minorities and first generation immigrants now that are that have kids that are naturalized citizens of whatever the immigration's descent. And now it's those those little insight, you know, what you call jokes are no longer jokes because those kids saw the people you were making fun of come home and how, what it actually did to them, even though they laughed at you for saying it. They just didn't want to. They didn't want to cause a scene. That that was a generation of just do your job. Just do your job. Yeah, it wasn't it. It what you didn't want to be the person that brought something up or you know risked risk. I guess losing everything to 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 make a statement. Yeah, to stand up for tacos, right? Like yeah, <laughs> people would just smile and laugh and oh, you're funny, but you know it's. It, it still affected them a little bit and they brought obviously brought it home with them to the point that their children, you know, noticed it. And then when they became adults said, Hey, you know, maybe, you know, we don't, don't put that on me just because of my, you know, my heritage or my color, my skin or anything like that. There, there's more to yeah. me than that. And I appreciate it. If you'd actually just make an effort to know me versus who I, where I come from. Yeah. No, that's 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 beautiful, and I think that happens more now. Like I think to your point, it, it's it's way better than it was, um, and it, I see it continuing to get better. I can sit, um, you know, in our our little community, um, and I can see it with the people that I talk to and meet. I also see with kids, you know, like stuff that stuff that I even still to this day may chuckle at because of you know we thought it was funny as kids like my daughter would be appalled at at the same time there's things that have like been completely forgotten for example example she she the other day um i don't want to get her in trouble or get her canceled but she said something 
was oriental. Mm-hmm. And I told her, I was like, I don't think you're allowed to say that. Like, I think you got to be careful about it. Yeah. They don't want to be, I guess, she, grouped into one, I guess, civilization. But it wasn't, it was interesting because like she was, she was not trying to be yeah. offensive at all. And it wasn't even about a group of people. It was about something specific. And I, and I hate that I don't remember, but like she had no idea that that was a problem because I guess kids don't say that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I was like, Oh, okay, well that's cool. So what do you say? And I, and she goes, well, we, we call them Asian. And I go, that's great. I go, so what are they? And she was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, Asia is a big country. You know what I mean? Like Russia's in Asia. It's a continent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, continent. Sorry. You got Russia or USSR or whatever it's Indian, called now. Sri Lankan. India, Sri Lankan. I mean, there's, it's gargantuan. Right. And so that's all to me, you know, this is something that I feel like I would be misunderstood. Right. Is where I go, okay, well, what do you mean by Asian? And like, cause I'm wanting some qualifier. Not that it really matters, but I'm, I'm interested. Like, because someone, you call someone Asian, are they, are they someone from India? Or are they someone from China? I, I, I don't know. And I know that's, that's what I mean. That's a, that's another example. Like, that's a question I would ask. And someone would just assume I'm being an asshole about it. But I'm, I'm genuinely asking because I, if I wanted to qualify somebody or refer to somebody and not be offensive, but be able to describe somebody with more detail besides just Asian, you know, yeah. how would I do that? Um, and I'm not trying to solve it now, but I, I was just using it as an example of like, I don't like that feeling where someone's like, man, JJ is an asshole. He's trying to make fun of the whole thing. And I'm like, no, I'm just curious. Yeah. But it, you just have you just have to be authentic and just that. What I've realized is just you have to be authentic and you know, as a comic, impressions matter. So it, it doesn't help your fear any when you're a stand-up comic <laughs> because when you go into a new club or there's a new booker in town or anything like that, you want to try to bring your best impression, and it's it's very anxiety ridden because it's it you it it depends on a crowd that may or may not like you, and you go up there and you could literally just have death because the audience isn't either isn't there for you or they're, you know, they're here just because they don't know what's going on or, you know, they just may have been turned off by your first joke and just absolutely shut down. But there's just so much, I would say anxiety when it comes to booking. Okay. Because you, it's again for impressions matter, and that's why I tell people like I can't watch you every week as a booker myself. I was like, I can't watch you every week. That's like trying. That's like watching you know something dry. Like a, it's like watching a wet piece of paper dry. It's not going to. It's mm. not going to be something that's that you can see drastically. Like I, I want to look at you over time so I can see a drastic change rather than just the microcosm of the next week. Oh yeah, he changed that one word. Yeah. Well, it's not even that. It's it's most of it is is presence, and you're not going to get over stage fright or stumbling in one in one open mic session. It doesn't. Nobody's that quick. And if you are, then I'm wondering about your material. 
because it's hard to find mm-hmm. the right words sometimes. Sometimes you have to you have to do it like 50 times to find the right word to make the laugh happen. Otherwise they're yeah. thinking too hard. And so I just I try to watch people and then I'll pop in like every every few every so often listen to them and and just take a grade on where they at versus like the last few months when I heard them and just I try to do it that way rather than watch every single set because I don't think I can it doesn't help you if I don't see the change whereas if I can I walk mm. in after 3 months of not hearing you and hear the difference I'm like okay that is definitely some growth yeah and that's that's how I try to approach it and it's just hard I, Addison Improv still gives me jitters sometimes because it's one of those things where I want to be on the regular roster so badly that I will I'll get anxiety trying to make this room explode and it'll 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 have the opposite effect because that desire to make that first impression I'll press so hard that the audience can sense that and they press back and so then I will have a mediocre to bad set because I am either rushing and cutting trying to get you know to more punchlines faster so I can have more what I would say a a hotter 10 minutes than if I had just done a regular 10 minutes like I'm trying to put 15 minutes of material clip it to where into a amazing 10 but some of those little details are just things over time and then you have to try to I have to try to piecemeal my words so that I don't you know go into the other parts that I cut and so I have to stop and think okay what what do I where am I going from this like I have I can edit but when you don't practice it and you just try to throw it out there your edits you just your habit is to keep going with the way you've always done it yeah now that's funny it, 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 that you say it I, I i see that self in myself too especially when you're trying to trying to give the right impression and then you end up getting your head or nerves nerves man you're not relaxed so you're not really you're not really yourself like no i'm actually funny it's not yeah this isn't me <laughs> let's just well it's not even that it's like oh my god this is my what it used to be for me is like this is my opportunity to show them that i'm good and then as things would unravel i'd be like oh my god this isn't this isn't i'm not, i'm not it's not working i don't know what to do what you know oh this is this is all going so badly and it just unravels you. It unravels you at your core. And even though you're able to stand up there and still talk in your mind, you've already just thrown up your hands. Yeah, it's it's a great man. I, I you know, it's funny. I guess I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but like comedy is not conducive to my worst fear. <laughs> it's like it's literally the worst because, you know, we're always trying to make a joke and, you know, some of us are better than others. Some of us have no filter, like, and especially when we're talking to each other, like yeah. the kind of stuff that we'll say to each other to make each other laugh is way different than what some of us will even try on stage. Right. Yeah. Like it's just like a different thing. And so it's, it's a, uh, it's funny. I hadn't really thought about that. I wonder, I wonder if it's my way of fighting back against my fear a little bit too, you know? Yeah. It, it It's also something again, that you can, it can, it can over time comedy can give you 
awesome keynote and speaking skills just to be able to control if you can contr- figure out learn how to control your emotions you can you can rule over public speaking because that's the, that's a lot of the key to comedy is being able to control that anxiety and that fear and and that desire to put seven minutes of comedy into five minutes and to be okay with doing maybe four, instead of seven minutes, doing four minutes and getting good response and getting off rather than trying to shoehorn in an extra two minutes yeah, of material it. because you want, you want to see what it does. And that's even what more, man. It's just, it's just really hard because your anxiety is, is, you know, this is my chance to do this. They're really liking me. Let me, you know, try to get these in here. And what you do is you end up either giving them a, sh- a shortened down edited version or you start to pick up the pace of your speech to the point that they're n- they're not able to follow because you're going through it so quickly that you're, al- you know, they're already onto the next thing before they can actually respond to it. And yeah. you, you just end up getting the wrong read on some bits. And so that's why I have my discipline of, even though the jokes I'm, my new jokes right now that I'm doing are probably from 2015 or 2016, that I'm just going through those old notebooks systematically every month, page by page, and putting the next things on my list and just working through them for that month just because I want to give them their honest and I want to try to, you know, work them and see what can do what, what has legs, what ha- doesn't, but I don't want to just play with the new toy I wrote two weeks ago. Yeah, you're you're really, really disciplined about that. I've I've noticed that since I've been doing it. You'll 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 commit to, you know, this is the five, three, seven, whatever minutes I'm doing this month. And you'll work that muscle out. And I've I've learned from that, like to do the same thing and record it and try to, you know, what is is this going right? Did I say it the right way? Let me say it the same way again to see if I get the same shitty response. Okay, I did. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's a it's an art form, but man, it takes a discipline and it's ooh, it's something yeah. crazy. Well, I appreciate you for doing this, JJ. Um, it's been an amazing conversation. Where can people find you on social media if they want? Uh, I'm the Boostaloo on Twitter, uh, Boostaloo on Instagram and Facebook. You know, I got a website coming out soon, but it's not out yet. So if you follow me or you, you tag on, I'll make a big announcement when that comes out. But I appreciate your time, man. I appreciate you having me. Now, what is Boostaloo, by the way? I want to. I want to know what where that comes from. Uh, so it's uh it's it's a nickname my dad gave me when I was younger. Uh, all my friends used to thought it was was funny, and I used to get teased about it a little bit, but I just embraced it. Called me Boost, and I made it my gamer tag, and I was kind of leaned into it. I I don't know where he came up with it or why I didn't steal the toilet. I don't know what it, I don't know what Boost Lou. How do you break it down? But it's it's phonetically just yeah. like it it sounds, and it. I've just leaned into it. So is your dad English English, like traditional? No, he's uh he's actually one of seven. Well, yeah, the Lou, that's the only thing I can think of a Lou is, right? But he's he's one of seven. He grew up in Conway Projects in Stockton, California, in a little duplex. And awesome. He's just a you know, a normal hardworking awesome. black guy. Well, that's 
I wonder. <laughs> yeah, I, it might you might ask him, or is he still? as he passed on? No, he's here. He's here. He'll be here for uh, Thanksgiving, so I'm gonna hang out with him. I'll I'll make sure I ask him. Yeah, just ask him what 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 inspired him to call you Boostaloo. Because I feel like yeah. a, I feel like what he's gonna say is you may have danced as a kid, and you were like doing like yeah. the boogaloo shrimp, like breaking <laughs> breaking two, and maybe that's where he got it from. Was like the boostaloo. Maybe, or, and who knows? You know, maybe. maybe or you wore track suits. Maybe you wore track suits and stuff like that as a kid, like Mikey B and all Todd. No, they used to they used to put me in bow ties and sport coats actually. <laughs> So you had bow ties even as a child. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to wear the white man's noose, bro. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you only have, have to only have to half wear it. <laughs> yeah, <dude. laughs> well, thank you again, JJ. Hey man, I appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. So that was Jonathan. What an interesting conversation. Kind of deep too. It's amazing sometimes how people can be impressions, both positive and negative, not just by what they see, but what they hear from you. Sometimes if you don't get full behind a certain thought or certain opinion, how it can sometimes tend to come back and be a negative. It's a real interesting proposition. You can check Jonathan Jones out at Boostaloo on all social media for the most part. Check out his comedy as well as some of his papers. They're fascinating read. As for me, I am off to the Plano House of Comedy on Wednesday. And then Thursday, I will be on my way to Wichita, Kansas to work with Vince Morris. And then the following week, I work with Vince Morris again at the Looney Bin in Oklahoma City. So come check us out. If you're in either of those market areas, we'll be performing all weekend at both clubs. After that, I'll be recording my album featuring for Rob Little at Hyenas in Fort Worth. So that's going to be a fun show. Come check that out one of those nights. It'll be a fantastic, fantastic night of comedy. I'm excited. I'm ready. I'm practicing. And we'll see how well things go. As as for that, New Year's has come and gone. Happy 2022 to everyone out there. Um, hopefully it's a more exciting year for me comedy-wise. I'll try to get into some more clubs as the year progresses. Hopefully, you know, we'll get more exposure and things will pick up. I'll have some new guests. I have one book for Tuesday that I'll interview and we'll see how it all works out. Um, I'm excited I'm going to hopefully get a bunch of interviews for 2022 for this podcast and just keep them going. I thank you guys again for listening to the Sum of All Fears podcast. If you like what you hear, leave a review. I love to see five-star reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you have feedback for the show, email me at somefearfans at gmail.com. Things are winding down on the football front, so my job at Dave & Buster's will... I guess, come to an end. Hope maybe other stuff will come here and there on Sundays as the year goes on. Thanks again to everybody that's done that with me. That being said, happy 2022, and thanks for listening to the Sum of All Fears podcast. Have a wonderful week.
And now some thank yous for the folks that make this show possible. Thanks to Barry Whitewater for my art and graphics. You can follow him on Instagram at bwhiteh2o. Get it? H2O like water. You can also follow him on Facebook. Music. A huge thank you to Gunnar Olson for the wonderful music provided for this podcast. You can follow him on Instagram at gunbuns. That's G-U-N-B-U-N-S. As well as his website, GunnarOlson.net. Check out some of the samples that he has recorded. They're amazing. He's an amazing percussionist. If you want to follow the show, we've got a Facebook group, Some of All Fears. Instagram, Twitter, you can find us at Some Fear Fans. If you have some feedback for the show, email me at SomeFearFans, S-O-M-E-F-E-A-R-F-A-N-S, at gmail.com. I'll be happy to, to take those into consideration. Also, if you'd like to be a guest, email me at somefearfans at gmail.com. We can try to iron out some details and get that settled in. You know, give us some feedback if on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review. It makes the show bigger, and it's not going anywhere. I'm going to record as many shows as I possibly can. If you want to follow me, on social media, I am at Ryan Perio. It's R-Y-A-N-P-E-R-R-I-O on all social media platforms. You can follow me there. And you can check me out at ryanperio.com, my website. I'll try to list upcoming shows there as well. It's been kind of spotty because as soon as I set it up, that's when the pandemic happened. And everything's kind of just in a, in a holding pattern. Thanks again for listening to the Sum of All Fears podcast. Next week, we'll have another guest with another fear. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 